0: So this evening I'd like to offer some reflections on the art of losing gracefully. And I want to start by returning to a poem that many of you will be familiar with by Naomi Nye, And this is a poem I return to many times because I do feel it really speaks to the heart of what we do here and really speaks to the heart of the path of awakening. And it's a poem called Kindness. And she writes, Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride thinking the bus will never stop, the passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road, you must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness is the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it's only kindness that makes sense anymore, only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for and then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. Among the many evocative lines in this poem, there's a few I would like to reflect on more deeply. All this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How we must be willing to lose things. I think life, it seems to me, is is an ongoing lesson of births and deaths. It's an ongoing lesson of how to lose things. It's a lesson that through time has really been the birthplace of compassion. It's also a lesson none of us can actually truly avoid. But this losing of things can also be the birthplace of very profound distress, and fear, and anger, and denial. So much in our world, so much in our culture, we have this ongoing encouragement to gain, and to hold, and to become, to gain things, to gain certainties, to gain identities. And it's so, in a way, it's so, on a way, so different than what we hear in this teaching which is about how to release things, how to unbind. The path we're engaging in here is one that offers us a choice about what will be born within us in response to the losses that will be part of our lives. The path we're engaged in here is one of learning what it is to turn towards life rather than to flee or to abandon or to try to find an uncertain and ineffective refuge in holding. It allows us to choose what pathway we will follow in in the face of the inevitable losses that are threaded through our lives not just of things, but of hopes, of dreams. When you look at your own life, when you look around you and acknowledge everyone in this room, when you look around you and acknowledge everyone in your life just now, those you love and those you struggle with, and then we expand the field of our awareness even wider, and acknowledge the lives of the many that we don't know. And we know that there's not one single person who is exempt from losing things. We lose people we love. Relationships end. We age and we we lose our sense of capacity. I notice in getting up from a cushion, last year I lost my spring. I don't know where it went. One day it was there. The next day I didn't spring anymore. And it's gone. I don't expect it to return. And there's some peace in that. We lose capacity. Sometimes we lose the health we've relied upon. Our bodies change in ways that are hard to accept. Our identities change. We say goodbye to children. We say goodbye to roles. We say goodbye to positions that we've held. And we lose certainties. We lose certainties over and over again. The Dalai Lama, in teaching about impermanence and change, he he encouraged people to reflect upon what has already disappeared all the thoughts we've had in our lives, all the emotions we've had in our lives, all the moods that we've had in our lives, all the hopes, the, the disappointments we've had in a single life. And so many of them are just simply now only a memory. We think of this moment and the ending of the last breath. We think about the moods and, and the 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 impulses and the thoughts perhaps even of this morning that felt so, so pressing and so urgent at the time. And they've already disappeared. This reflection was never intended to be an encouragement towards depression or, uh, you know, to, to make us feel purposeless in life you know, or to feel where there's, it's hardly worth engaging in anything because it's already going to disappear, you know. It, it, that, it, or it's not an encouragement to sort of f- see meaninglessness in all that we do and all that we create and all that we engage in. But it is an encouragement to turn towards life and to live our life freely rather than being bound The Buddha once put it, he says the person who turns fearlessly towards the actuality of distress, the origins of distress, and the path leading to the end of distress, has found the supreme, the secure refuge where there is an end to all distress. We also learn in turning towards life that we can also lose much of the struggle and much of the conflict and much of the confusion that can beset a life that is governed by denial. In the early teachings, the Buddha outlined in a way the very core dilemmas, the very universal core dilemmas of every human life that are, you know, often summed up somewhat inadequately in this word dukkha, that is so poorly translated as suffering, by the way, rather than understanding that the threads of dukkha run through both the lovely and the unlovely equally. The Buddha put it simply, dukkha is to be understood. And within within this understanding lies our freedom. And within this understanding, compassion is born. And he said, you know, dukkha is not a problem to be overcome. It's not an enemy to do battle with. It's a simple actuality. And it's not our fault. It's not no one to blame. It's not a failure but this willingness to turn fearlessly towards dukkha is really at the begin at the beginning of awakening and i would point out that we spend a lot of our lives at the front line of dukkha you know because dukkha is not just about the big changes and the losses and the you know the deaths and and the frailty do is all those small moments of irritation in a day where you know we just feel the rub you know we we just it's not the moment's just not quite the way we think it should be or want it to be you know dukkha is that rub against a person who irritates us you know it's it's you know dukkha translated from the Pali actually means messy space actually translates as messy space. Hmm? Which is kind of interesting, you know, how often we're just feel like we're in that messy space. The way the the, the way the way the words uh, do anka you know, it, you, the image that is often used is if you, in, in the times of the Buddha, when they had these very rudimentary carts, you know, to pull things around on. And so, you know, you would have the, the cartwheel and then the axle, and the axle didn't quite fit, you know, so the cart would go bumpity bumpity bumpity, bumpity. That's the messy space of dukkha, you know. It's just a bumpy ride. It's just a bumpy ride. And, you know, I think it's really important, although many of you are so experienced, I think it's so important to keep returning to this core teaching because, you know, this is where freedom actually lies. And to consider the the primary threads of this word dukkha. The pain of pain, that which hurts. You know, there are a lot of things in life that hurt. You know, know, the the injuries, the, the... uh the the oh gosh, so where do we start the difficult emotions the difficult moods the, the aching back you know the the itchy ear uh, you know the the there's the simple hurts and there's the most complex hurts of grief and despair and fear and depression the body sometimes just hurts doesn't it you, know, you just wake up in the morning and it hurts huh? The mind is so deeply vulnerable to rejection and to loneliness and to anxiety. And none of us are exempt. And to seek exemptions is actually to set ourselves up for a great much great deal more distress. The second strand of dukkha that is so important just to keep in mind. about change and instability, it's really startling to realize, you know, that no matter how heroic the efforts are that we make, we just cannot prevent the tides of change running through our lives. And none of us are going to be successful in being able to control the world of conditions that we live in. We can't make anyone or anything stand still for us. We can't demand that the sun shines every day and that we have only lovely people and lovely thoughts and lovely events and lovely experiences. And part of us knows this, and part of us just just really does not want to know. Hmm? Just does not want to know. Hmm? It is amazing how often life has been teaching us about releasing and letting go and change and instability. And yet still we argue. Still we argue. Still we we say you know, this shouldn't be happening. You know? Or it shouldn't be happening to me. It's okay if it happens to other people, but you know, <laughs> it's actually shouldn't be happening to me. Hmm? The Buddha was in his life was in you know, a really clear in identifying the very human responses that lead to actually distress rather than dukkha, more refined levels of dukkha, that we experience in in our reactions to change, to instability. Sometimes we just get angry. Sometimes we just get angry in the face of loss, in the face of unwelcome change, in the face of instability. Sometimes we look for someone to blame. If we could hold someone at fault, maybe, maybe we would feel better. Sometimes in the face of all this uncertainty, we despair and we can sink in despondency and helplessness, feeling life is so unfair. Sometimes we blame ourselves, you know, we feel it's it's somehow my fault. I didn't try hard enough. You know, I didn't try hard enough to make things stand still or to keep things close. Or I wasn't wasn't ca- good enough. I wasn't capable enough to prevent loss, as if as if dukkha is somehow a personal weakness. A lot of times in the face of dukkha we just get busy, don't we? You know try, you know, Google goes into overdrive, you know, as we try to find solutions, you know, and, you know, what has somebody else done to fix this, you know, or or to make this go away. Or we pretend, you know, and I think culturally we engage in a lot of collective pretending. A lot of collective pretending. Um, And sometimes our pretending is actually quite severe. You know, we can lose ourselves in in addiction or dissociation or fantasy or numbness. And we might be familiar with these responses. We might specialize in one or two of them. But we also know their outcome. You know, that this is how we heap distress upon distress. And there's a story from one of the suttas I'm sure some of you are familiar with, which is so key, key to understanding this. Another change. <laughs> it's been a very small writing late at night. <laughs> when, when an untaught worldling is touched by a painful bodily feeling, she worries and agonizes. She laments, she beats her breast, weeps and is distraught. Thus she experiences two kinds of feelings, a bodily and a mental feeling. It is as if a person is pierced by an arrow, and following that first piercing, she is hit by a second arrow. So that person will experience feeling caused by two arrows. But in the case of a well-taught noble disciple, as you all are, when she is touched by a painful feeling... She will not worry nor grieve and lament. She will not beat her breast and weep, nor will she become distraught. It is one kind of feeling she experiences, a bodily one, but not a mental one. It is as if a person was pierced by an arrow, but was not hit by a second arrow, following the first one. So this person experiences feelings caused by a single arrow only. A lot of second arrows fly around, don't they? And we we really see that as long as we're firing the second arrow, we actually feel that we're doing battle with involuntary renunciation. And this is often our first exposure to releasing, unbinding, is involuntary renunciation. You know, it's as if we feel that all that we hold dear or cling to, all that we love, all that we rely on, is somehow being taken away or stolen from us or snatched away from us. And in involuntary re- renunciation, there's often little grace. There's often found very little stillness and compassion, but resentment and fear and bitterness and anger. And then the very first lesson of compassion is to cease to blame the world or ourselves. To understand that our denials and our reactivity, our fears, our angers, our despairs, our numbness, these are also dukkha. These are also the pain of pain. And they ask to be cared for. Before we learn the tender gravity of kindness, We must see the size of the cloth. We must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. Wake up with sorrow. Speak. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows, and you see the size of the cloth. I think when dukkha is not understood, when it's regarded as a problem to be overcome, have you noticed how deeply self-absorbed we get? You know, we ruminate, we obsess, um, we worry, we become hypervigilant to threat, and essentially we contract. When dukkha is not understood, we contract around it. We no longer see the size of the cloth, but we're often prone to seize upon one thread or one patch and mistake it to be the whole. This is the nature of the contracted mind, that our voice no longer catches the thread of all sorrows. We don't see the size of the cloth. And in that contractedness, something so important is forgotten. We forget about the simple and the profound gesture of compassion that can heal, that allows us to embrace and to understand dukkha gracefully that teaches us how to lose things without bitterness or despair, it's not to suggest in any way that loss is emotionally neutral, because it's certainly not. We're not trying to turn ourselves into blocks of wood. You know, loss is deeply sad. Loss is heartbreaking. But I think we learn to mourn our losses as mature women, as mature human beings, Compassion in the early teachings is not a singular emotion. In fact, it's not presented as an emotion at all. It's spoken of as a virtue. Compassion guards our thoughts, our words, our action. Compassion guards the well-being of our minds and the world. It teaches us to care about the kind of footprint that we leave on the world, and that we leave upon our own heart. Compassion is spoken about as a seed of potentiality, a capacity that lies within each of us, that all of us have the potential to know very deep, very profound, transforming compassion. Compassion is also spoken of as an intention, a cultivation, a pathway, as much as we develop our capacity for mindfulness, so too we develop and train our capacity to incline our minds and hearts towards compassion. Compassion is also spoken about as a fruition. This is the landscape of the awakened heart, embodied in our thoughts, our words, our actions in our way of being present, in all moments and all events. I think for many we can have such, you know, historical and deeply embedded patterns of, you know, self-judgment, of inadequacy, of self-criticism, that we may find it much easier to hold others in a compassionate way than ourselves. In, in the early teachings, compassion is really not for self or other. In fact, it might be truer to say that compassion flourishes, even relies upon softening the voices of self and other, knowing that it is in this division of self and other that this is the fertile ground in which aversion and fear, mistrust, flourish. Compassion instead is for dukkha. However, wherever it appears, compassion is seen as being the only response that makes sense anymore. As it says in the poem, it sends you out into your day to read letters and purchase bread, Only kindness, compassion that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it's I have been looking for and goes with you everywhere. There's two primary dimensions to compassion. The first, and the word in Pali, is, is anukampa. It really translates as an empathic stillness. The heart that can tremble. It is this empathic st- stillness we develop as we look out the window where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead in the, by the side of the road. And you must see how this could be you, that he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. I think this empathic stillness asks us to travel many places that might not be comfortable for us to go. It asks us to travel to the place of the person who annoys us, irritates us. Compassion asks us to travel to the places the person might live that we, that we hate or, or fear. Compassion asks us to travel to the landscape of violence and rage and ignorance, to the dying, to the child of famine, also, to the places in ourselves that it's not always comfortable to go our judgments and our fears, our angers, our impatience, our disappointment. What does this em- empathic stillness require in the face of the chaotic and the, the, the disappointing, the unsettling, the unacceptable? What does it mean to really understand? understand that this could be me without making it mine. This could be me without making it mine. The sympathetic stillness, it seems to me, really asks us to step out of our narratives, our explanations, our judgments, our interpretations, to step out of our problem-solving mode and to be still, In the early traditions, this is empathic stillness is often described as being able to listen to the cries of the world. And certainly this empathic stillness asks us to put down our our busyness and our numbness and to be touched deeply. We really do see, I think, how much mindfulness and the sensitizing that comes through mindfulness, the intimacy that comes through mindfulness, is the forerunner of compassion, because that's when we can pause, that's when we can be awake, that's when we can can listen. I think, you know, there's so much in this path, but certainly compassion really asks us to learn to love stillness far more than distractedness or agitation or busyness. Compassion needs intimacy. Compassion is not found at a distance. And yet it is often the greatest gift that we can offer to ourselves or to another in the midst of distress is this quality of empathic listening. And you know, this is perhaps not so difficult for us to bring to a crying child or an injured animal Or a loved one who's facing some catastrophic change. It's far more difficult, isn't it, to bring the empathic stillness challenging to bring to those who act out of rage or fear or ignorance. Who perpetuate injury or suffering. My first and greatest teachers were not those who just spoke about compassion, they were those who truly embodied compassion. There was a time when I was living in in a Tibetan refugee community, and I lived on the mountainside just above the community, but would come down each morning. And it was usually a bustling place. And one morning I came down and there was this extraordinary, eerie, eerie silence. And Everyone in the village was standing at the door of their house or at the door of their, their market stall and just standing with still with with such sorrow etched on their face and I, I really couldn't understand at first what was going on and then I but but we all became well I became silent, something. Something was happening, and I, I discovered that a woman in the village had had a psychotic break and killed her child. And in a Tibetan community, this was something, you know, unfathomable, unfathomable. The the whole distress of it all, but but there was no there was no agitation. There was simply this stillness and this offering that all that could be offered in that moment. In the face of this sorrow of all sorrows, all that could be offered was the sympathetic stillness and being present. Stillness is the ground of empathy. It's a seed we cultivate. And where, where, you know, we ask ourselves, well, where do we cultivate that seed? Apart from in all the moments when we find ourselves unconsciously cultivating something else. You know, stillness is cultivated in the midst of those moments of fear, those moments of distancing, those moments of ill will, those moments of blame and judgment. These are the moments for us to find our out-breath and to listen deeply. To know that this is dukkha in the midst of our numbness and our busyness and our agitation, it's understandable that we want to flee from affliction. But it's also knowing that that fleeing is not going to find a refuge that can be relied upon. And I think we can remind ourselves again and again of the power of stillness. I'm often reminded of, you know, the, the Buddha's statue, this mutra, you know, this, this gesture of the Buddha touching the ground, you know, it's said that on the night of his awakening, when he was assailed by the forces of Mara, of everything, that when he faced everything in his own mind that caused affliction and that, you know, encouraged him to flee and to abandon his quest, his response was to reach down and to touch the ground. And I think we learn to do this, and we learn to perhaps to step out of our narratives and remember that our mechanisms of blame and ill will are born of our own fear of injury. And perhaps we use the tools that we have to calm our hearts, to learn to look at life fearlessly, Sometimes the simple willingness to sit or to walk with our grief alongside us is actually what can be offered. Then we remember that it's only compassion that makes sense anymore. I think that this cultivation of this, this capacity for empathic stillness you know, it, it begins with, with learning to cultivate a lot of moments of pausing, a lot of moments of breathing out. It seems to me in many people's lives they take a lot more in press than they take out breath. You know, we sort of forget to breathe out, you know, and just to stop. You know, I think in more traditional teaching, this is actually called restraint restraining the impulses that feed the fires of agitation. And in the art of of losing gracefully is not only our willingness to to lose our certainties and our identities and our roles, it's also the willingness to lose and to release our tendency to, to deny and to hold and to defend. The first dimension of compassion is this stillness, this empathic listening. But it's, it's interwoven, intrinsically interwoven, with the second dimension of compassion called karuna, which is resp- to respond, to to reach out, to act, to alleviate distress whenever it can be alleviated, to reach out, to act, to alleviate and to uproot the causes of distress. We should never think of compassion as somehow a prescription to sit on the sidelines of life and watch. It's it's an invitation to engage. It's an invitation to courage. I mean, certainly not all dukkha can be solved, um, but all dukkha can be responded to. Sometimes all we can offer is stillness Sometimes what we can offer is action. In the teachings that I received about compassion, the teaching actually that the Buddha offered about compassion, we're very clear that you actually don't have to feel compassionate to act and speak compassionately. So two different things. Hmm? If we waited until we felt compassion... You know, we could wait a long time. Mm? And it's so interesting how in Buddhist teaching, this, this behavioral ledge, you know, don't, don't wait for your mind to be perfect before you begin to live compassionately. Mm? Act and speak compassionately. Has little to do with a feeling, but an intentional commitment to heal dukkha rather than add to the mountain of dukkha that exists in our world. In the Dhammapada, one of the early collections of teachings, there's a wonderful line that says, it's not difficult for us to do things that are harmful to our well-being. It's far more difficult for us to do that which serves our well-being well. I think this is great, you know, I mean, it, you think about it, you know, it, you don't have to make a lot of effort to be aversive, do you, you don't have to sort of work it up, you know, you're <laughs> really going to be aversive today, you know, I mean, churn up some good agitation, you know? it doesn't just seem to come so naturally, you know, it's uh, uh, effortless, you know, the effortless path of agitation, you know, the effortless path of aversion or impatience. But it's far more difficult for us to act and live in ways that serve our well-being and the well-being of others. Well, you know, there's so much in in this teaching which is countercultural. You know, you know how we endow feeling with the authority to guide our actions and our speech. You know that somehow it's inauthentic unless we feel it. Uh, I think this is very different in this teaching. It's something deeper, more enduring than transient moods or emotions. It's a commitment to healing dukkha that is strengthened through its application in the face of pain, the face of distress, in the face of the familiar patterns of anxiety and agitation and busyness. You know, that we so easily get... When we're faced with the difficult, don't we just so easily get triggered into action? But when we bypass the empathic listening part, that is so needed to guide skillful response, when we bypass the empathic listening in the face of distress, mostly often we're moving into fix-it mode. You know, how do I fix this? How do I make this go away? You know, how do I overcome this? We've skipped out that very vital piece of the heart trembling. And it's out of that vital piece that there comes a kind of response which is not a disguised aversion but which has something to do with understanding dukkha and responding skillfully. The signaling for this bypassing of, of empathy, I think, is often a feeling of urgency, a feeling of insistence, you know, a feeling of agitation. You know, we are so not short of opportunities to understand dukkha and to ask what is needed. You know, these, these small things matter. You know, this aching back or this difficult mood, the person who irritates us or the people that we sorrow with. There's so many moments when we, we look dukkha in the eye, on our streets, in our communities, in our society, in our world. This is our classroom. You know, sometimes in the face of Dukkha, this is when we hear the voice of self and other begin to arise so powerfully and so loudly. You know, sometimes the other is external, sometimes the other is internal. But whenever that voice of self and other is simultaneously arising, we should know we're in trouble. You know, we are far away from compassion and we are in the landscape of perpetuating distress and all the isms that beset our world. But we know, too, that this pattern of self and othering arising is also the cries of the world, the cries of our inner world, that merits compassion. And we also know that what we feed will grow, that what we practice we will become more adept at. And I think this practice really frees us to choose what it is that we feed and practice. And wisdom guides us to feed and and nurture and practice what frees our heart and our capacity for empathy and response. The world we live in is burdened by so much distress. And the world we live in is in so much need of depths of compassion. You know, the early images of compassion are often, uh, there's two that really stand out, and we often only see the one. You know, we often see that, like the Kuan Yin statues we have here of the Bodhisattva receptive. Um, and we forget that the other image that you see very much, certainly in Asian societies, is the warrior image. You know, the, the compassionate warrior who is really resolute in their commitment to uprooting the causes of dukkha. Compassion doesn't allow us to distance ourselves from this world. It encourages us to participate. Because there is much that is unacceptable. And learning to accept does not mean all things are acceptable. And there is much that is unacceptable and that perpetuates and continues so much unnecessary pain. This doesn't invite blame or judgment, but it invites a commitment to say no and at times to withdraw our consent. Just as we learn to lose gracefully in so many areas of our lives, we learn, too, to lose our fears and our apprehensions, our opinions and our views. And know that we live in the midst of our life where, you know, where all things, all our words, all our acts, all our thoughts actually make a difference. There's a teaching by Dogen. He says, meditation is to study the self. And to study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be awakened by all things. To be awakened by all things is to let body and mind of self and other fall away. But in this, this emptying of selfing, stands alongside the teaching of connectedness and care. As Shantideva puts it, just as these arms and legs are seen as limbs of a body, why are embodied beings not seen as limbs of life? Okay, thank you for your attention. If we could have just a moment quietly together. And just to end with another poem by Naomi Shehab again called Adios. It's a good word rolling off the tongue, no matter what language you were born with. Use it, learn where it begins, the small alphabet of departure, how long it takes to think of it, then say it, be it then be heard. Marry it more than any golden ring. It shines, it shines. Wear it on every finger. your hands dance, touching everything easily, letting everything easily go. Strap it to your back like wings or a kite tail, the stream of air behind a jet. If you are known for anything, let it be for the way you rise out of sight when your work is finished. Think of things that linger, leaves, cartons and napkins, the damp smell of mold. Think of things that disappear. Think of what you love best, what brings tears into your eyes. Something that said adios to you before you knew what it meant or how long it was for. Explain little. The word explains itself. Later, perhaps, lessons following lessons, like silence following sound. Case, we some time now for some walking before we come back for the last group sitting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.